From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We are not yet seeing a downward trend in cases or in hospitalizations. Governor Jared Polis joins us today as the state hits a rough patch. The Delta variant is thriving. Schools are trying to balance in-person learning with children's health. Air quality is suffering, and it's not just fires, it's ozone pollution. Meanwhile, Glenwood Canyon shows the debilitating effects climate change has on infrastructure. And if I haven't bummed you out too much, we'll stick around as we query the governor about all of this. Then, what's in a name? Well, when it comes to marijuana, there's a lot of baggage. I don't think the average person understands the context of this word. The season-ender of CPR's podcast, On Something, explores the nexus of cannabis history and racism. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. And Governor Jared Polis is with us live this morning. Let's jump right in. Governor, welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. Always a pleasure. 178 school districts in Colorado are deciding separately what their mask policy is. That's as COVID cases and hospitalizations rise. The Delta variant means that boosters have started. But of course, there's no vaccine for kids under 12. Is there any point at which you'd step in and order a statewide mask mandate for schools, as you did for the general public early on in the pandemic? Schools are back. My my kids are back. There are nine and seven uh, across the state. You know, parents, I think, are excited that in-person education is occurring everywhere. And uh, I was really a lot of work went into making sure that we had in-person education last year. We convened a back to school task force early and. Uh, our kids were back in a safe way, while in many other states, they were still doing remote, even through the entire year in some states. Um, in our state, we are providing uh, schools with science-based uh, information about the best way to uh, maintain a safe environment. Uh, we sent a, a, not just a letter to superintendents outlining the importance of these, but we also provide free medical-grade masks to all schools and free testing, which is key. And uh, I think if there's one area uh, that I wish got more attention. Uh, it was testing. Um, you know, obviously many districts are employing masks, and there's no question that they help um, they help reduce transmission. But uh, testing and screening is also extremely valuable, and uh, we have that available for uh, you know weekly testing of every student. And uh, we'd love to see more districts take us up on that. So really, there's no one answer. Is the short answer, Ryan? Um, districts are really working with their local public health departments with the guidance we gave them and looking at how they can implement what we call a layered approach. Meaning, you can't just say kids are wearing masks and that's all we're doing. But it's a combination of things. And in some areas, that includes required mask wearing. In other areas, it's uh, kids that want to wear masks are wearing masks. Throughout the pandemic, and in fact, uh, just in the last few seconds, there, you've said that your decisions are guided by science. 
The CDC recommends universal masking in schools, regardless of vaccination status. So does the American Academy of Pediatrics. A group of 19 Colorado health organizations released a statement urging the same. So as the state's chief executive, help me understand why you don't see yourself as the implementer of that science. Well, in our state, the governor doesn't run the school districts, and we agree with that guidance. Our state guidance does recommend universal mask wearing. And the piece that we have added to that is uh, especially for those who are not vaccinated. Um, I remember for a while, the CDC was only recommending mask wearing for uh, those who were unvaccinated. They then moved to everybody. Uh, and when you implement it at a school level, sometimes that means everybody, and it does in some districts. But we wanted to add, especially for those who are unvaccinated, there is a benefit for wearing masks for those who are vaccinated, but it is a much greater difference in risk for those who are unvaccinated. So our recommendations are consistent with the American Society of Physicians, consistent with the CDC, uh, and we've actually gone above and beyond that in, in terms of providing free medical grade masks to schools. Uh, which have a higher level of protection than the cloth mask that, that I wear on most occasions, and, and you probably do too. But for those who want that extra level of protection, medical grade masks can provide it. Just to put a finer point on this before we move on to uh, some other topics, are you saying that you lack the power entirely as governor to institute a school mask mandate, or are you saying it's a power that you choose not to use in deference to local control? Well, we provide the guidance, as does the CDC. Um, the CDC is not. But um, le- I guess I'm asking legally, do you have the power? The well, um, you know, whenever whenever an emergency power is used, Ryan, it's often litigated. We've only lost one of our uh, steps that we took to protect people, and mm-hmm. it actually had to do more with online elections and how people can petition online. Uh, every other step that we've taken. Uh, during this pandemic, and, and that it successfully led to Colorado having the 10th lowest death rate per capita of any state, was either sustained by the courts, allowed by the courts, or or wasn't challenged. So this particular one, um, Brian, has not been challenged, so I, I wouldn't really opine on what a court might say. But I can just tell you that with everything we've done, we've only, we've only lost one so far. Uh, that is to say, you would have the ability to do this. It might be challenged by a court, but uh, you are choosing not to use that power in deference uh, to, as I say, Colorado's some 178 school districts. You have been vaccinated, Governor. You've also had COVID. Uh, that was before there were vaccines. Have you personally added back any of the precautions you were taking early on, you know, at the grocery store or what have you? Yeah, I, at this point in the pandemic, I... Uh, wear a mask when I'm around a lot of other people indoors. And so, um, you know, if I'm going to be in an area with a number of folks, I, I will wear it. I did wear one at the grocery store the other day. I wouldn't say I do that religiously, but um, I, I generally would wear one, if, especially if there's a lot of people shopping. And, and I do that really to uh, to not be recognized so people don't bother me. No, just kidding, Ryan. Um, I do it I do it um, because I want to set that tone. Um, and I think, um, you know, it's it, 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 you know, I, I see some people mask and some people unmask at the grocery store. And I don't want that on my shoulders that I might be transmitting the virus with an asymptomatic case. And so I think it's a good precaution uh, to do. And, and we also, as a family, use testing. If we're going to see my parents who are in their late 70s, uh, you know, they, they're very careful and they want to make sure that, um, you know, I get tested before before we go see them. 
I'd like to talk about climate change and air quality. The state has issued 55 ozone action alerts so far this year, the highest number of these pollution warnings on record. Vehicles are one of the primary contributors. But your administration recently scrapped a proposal from the Air Pollution Control Division to help large employers cut down on automobile travel. Why back off of that? So we have a new uh, process. The draft just just went out this last Monday on transportation planning. And this is really a first-in-the-nation process for how our Department of Transportation, as well as the metropolitan regions that fund transportation projects, how they select and account for emissions from every transportation project. So uh, that can include short, medium, and long-term vision. It looks at what steps are being done with mitigating. So as every project is being planned, it could be something like an improvement of an exit ramp, could be something like a lane expansion. Uh, It implements a key provision of how we can directly tie that in to carbon emission reductions, or if you will, meeting the carbon emission budget, uh, which we uh, need uh, deep improvements from the transportation sector. Now, uh, the single most exciting thing in the transportation sector, Ryan, is the electrification of vehicles. Six percent of vehicles sold in the first quarter of this year were electric. It's going up even faster than than we thought. And we're planning for that with the charging, fast charging infrastructure, uh, with bringing more electric vehicles to market. Uh, and that is going to be a big part of meeting those emission reductions from transportation as well. And so you see a brighter future for electric vehicles. I guess I'm curious if you think to meet its carbon reduction goals, uh, the folks in Colorado need to drive less. That was part of that plan. Uh, do you think fundamentally there ought to be less driving in Colorado? in the face of climate change? Well, I think that most Coloradans would really appreciate being able to live closer to work. Uh, Coloradans don't like, no one likes a long commute. Um, So it ties into the housing affordability uh, crisis and how we can find as part of our uh, metro-wide and statewide planning, the opportunity for more Coloradans to live closer to where they work, whether that means they get to work Uh, by bike, e-bike, or walking, or whether it means a five-minute drive instead of a 30-minute drive, uh, that's a solution that really improves the quality of life for Coloradans and also significantly reduces uh, emissions from vehicles. Isn't that a much more fundamental change, getting people to move closer to where they work or for their companies to move closer to where folks live than simply encouraging people to telework? Well, people want that. Uh, people want to live close to where they work. And we love telework and, and location-independent employment, to be clear. In fact, the state, it, we're reducing our, our square footage of our uh, state offices by a million square feet because uh, we're going to uh, you know, 10 20% telecommuting. Uh, we were at about 1% before the pandemic. Obviously, like many companies, we briefly went to 60 70% telecommuting. Uh, we feel that there are greater efficiencies you know, in, in the uh, water cooler chat and people seeing one another. But we think that that new normal will be somewhere around 20% telecommuting. Many private sector companies are doing the same thing. So we are very excited about that. We actually, through the Office of Economic Development and International Trades, uh, created specific incentives 
around location-independent employment. That's a fancy word for telecommuting, Ryan. Location-independent means you can live everywhere, anywhere, and often people live in, can live in rural areas. We particularly tout this as a the way that people can live in, in rural areas and, and have uh, good jobs that, that no matter where they live in our great state. Governor, I, I want to talk about the shutdowns of the I-70 corridor. Uh, this is also related to climate change, which we were talking about before the break. Last summer's wildfires caused this summer's mudslides, Warming temperatures, drought, erratic weather are at the heart of all of this. And, you know, I-70 is hugely important, not just to travel, but to interstate commerce. What's a long-term fix there? Well, this is another example of the, the face of climate change and how it directly impacts our quality of life. This was the Grizzly Creek fire last year, um, essentially removed vegetation from Glenwood Canyon uh, we had our three largest wildfires in the history of our entire state last year. Um, and while this year uh, we've been, you know, somewhat more fortunate so far with several minor fires, the West is not. And we're experiencing the terrible air quality uh, and smoke from particularly the Dixie Fire in California, which is over 400,000 acres, more than twice the size of, of our largest fires. Um, so essentially, uh, when you remove any vegetation that can hold back uh, mud and silt, and there's a, a period of precipitation, uh, and we had a, a six or seven day period where we had about a month worth of precipitation in a very short period. There was very little to hold um, the mud back, and Glenwood Canyon I-70 was covered by about 10 to 15 feet of mud. We, Colorado Department of Transportation, worked tirelessly cleaning it out uh, to get it open. Uh, once we dug everything up, um, the road was only severely structurally damaged in a couple places, and we put temporary fixes in place to get that open as quickly as possible. Yeah. And what is the long-term fix here? I mean, we heard from a former CDOT engineer that really uh, much of the I-70 corridor is going to have to be made more resilient, not just Glenwood Canyon in the face of climate change. That's correct. So um, there's been long an interest from our administration and from me in having alternative routes um, for both heavy truck traffic, as well as for tourists, as well as for locals. Uh, a lot of those are not state roads, which means that the work continues with Garfield County and Eagle County in particular uh, to make the improvements we need to have several redundant uh, alternate routes. And, of course, uh, the additional work to do everything we can to minimize closures on Highway 70 in Glenwood Canyon, because that will, regardless of the alternative routes, generally be the fastest and safest way uh, to get across the area, both for trucking and for individuals. I think you're making uh, an allusion there to Cottonwood Pass in particular. Uh, this this is going to be an expensive endeavor, and, and politically it might be touchy too, huh? Well, um, the costs uh, of the improvements for the alternative routes are far less than the economic damage that ensues particularly when Glenwood Canyon is closed during a busy time. And uh, it's something simply the state can't afford to do, to have a several-hour bypass. Uh, we can't afford to have the heavy truck traffic coming into cities like Steamboat and damaging the local roads. So it, it really is something that's necessary to have those routes. And uh, we are working closely with Eagle and Garfield County to figure out the pathway to, to get it done as quickly as possible. And there are no doubt some federal funds involved in this as well. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, we've applied for over $110 million in federal funds. $11 million has already been dispersed for the immediate repairs. Uh, but one of the areas that, that will be able to support uh, is those alternative routes that are close by. 
I wonder if it feels at times like this is a game of climate change whack-a-mole. One environmental problem leads to another, and then there's a different crisis that pops up. And I wonder if, if it makes you ask yourself if your administration is moving fast enough on climate change. Has there been any part of you this past summer that says, we got to pick up the pace? We might even need to make people a little uncomfortable and, you know, make changes that uh, mean their lifestyles head in a different direction. Well, you know, um, I'm, I'm, of course, thrilled to see the, the, the ground shifting in a favorable way. When I ran for governor, I ran on a, a bold agenda of Colorado achieving 100% renewable energy by 2040. That was seen as bold, even by my political opponents, radical at the time. I'm glad to see the world has moved in that direction, and now people um, are advocating for even earlier dates. Uh, we will be, and I have a high degree of confidence, at about 80% renewable energy in 2030. That's just eight and a half years from now. We are moving fast, um, and and uh, I'm excited that Colorado is really a national story that other states are emulating uh, and and looking at some of our policies that are helping to get us there. You've been touring the state this summer. Uh, something you haven't had much opportunity to do during the pandemic. And uh, we're actually going to be hitting the road as well on Colorado Matters. One theme we're hearing in virtually every place we're planning to stop is the cost of housing, how unaffordable it's become in a wide variety of communities. I know you have heard this too, and I wonder if you have heard something that has gotten you thinking differently about this or introduced you to an approach that works. Well, I hope to see you out and about the state. Uh, let us know, and we'll have to meet up somewhere. Um, you know, housing is an issue everywhere you go. It's, it could be workforce housing in our tourism communities or in our ag communities. It could be, of course, um, in our suburban and urban communities um, where middle class and, and lower income hourly workers are able to live. Uh, it, it's becoming a, a major issue. Um, but, but there's also a great a set of exciting progress across the state where communities are really rising the occasion. First of all, example, yeah. one of the main areas of focus that Colorado is doing from our from our federal stimulus fund. So we're deploying a sizable amount of those to simply build more housing near where people work, uh, along transit corridors where people need it. Now, as you travel the state, I encourage you when you're near Steamboat Springs to visit the new 536-acre site that was donated from an anonymous donor to the Yampa Valley Housing Authority that will be able to support four or 5,000 residents, which really will, in this case, it's exciting to rather than be, you know, digging out of a hole, that'll actually, once it's planned, meet the workforce housing needs of the Yampa Valley Housing Authority area and Steamboat Springs. So, you know, land is at a premium, but it takes land, it takes developers, it takes public-private partnerships, and it's an imperative throughout the state and our goal as a state is to really empower uh, those creative solutions at the local level with support and leverage from the state level. With support and leverage from the state level. I mean, you have an office of saving people money on health care. Is it time to mount a state office of finding people places they can afford to live? Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. We do that through uh, that might be a good way, <laughs> good name for it. Um, Ryan, we, if, if, if you ever get laid off for, from, from CPR, you'll have to apply for a, a communications job in my administration because that's an excellent branding idea you just had. I hope um, to keep this but, job. Uh, we, yeah, we do it through the Department of Local Affairs, DOLA. So really, that's our state agency. Rick Garcia is the head of that. 
he um, partners with local government. So the way it might look is uh, there's a local government, um, and we also have an effort across our state government to identify state-owned land where we can then convey that to either a housing authority or to a public-private partnership mm-hmm. for housing. So we're leveraging every asset we have at the state and working with. And and I like your idea about you know maybe we can maybe we can market that a little bit better too. Well, I, you know, marketing only goes so far uh, in the face of a problem that uh, we're hearing about statewide. But um, uh, I, I just want to wrap up with what you might be planning into the fall for your administration. On Thursday, I'll note that Colorado Senator John Hickenlooper announced he has COVID. Um, he also expressed, by the way, gratitude to be vaccinated. We know that third doses of the mRNA vaccines are already going into arms with more coming. So indeed, take us into your administration's planning for the fall. What are you bracing for, preparing for in the last few minutes? Well, we certainly wish uh, Senator Hickenlooper well. And uh, what we are finding, as you know, is that uh, while the vaccine is very effective at preventing cases, it's even more effective at preventing hospitalizations or severe cases for those who contract the virus. So if you have a few listeners that haven't gotten the vaccine yet, and I hope you don't because your listeners are very well educated, uh, Ryan, but if you do and you're listening to this, please go out and get the vaccine. Uh, We would all be worried about Senator Hickenlooper much more if he had not been vaccinated. Um, and, 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 and the fact that he is, is a great consolation, not only to him, but the people of Colorado. So please get vaccinated. Um, highly effective vaccines are out there. Uh, I did. Um, and, and so did Senator Hickenlooper and so did uh, Republicans and Democrats, including President Trump and President Biden. Um, the third dose is now available. Um, if you have moderate, um, immune compromisation, uh, please go out and get it. You know, there's many people that are in their seventies and eighties that are getting it today. Um, with weakened immune systems. And, and we, we're making it easy. Um, you, you, don't, you just need to self-attest. You don't need to worry about getting a note from your doctor or anything like that. You simply say that you have a moderate or severe immune condition. It'll also be widely available to everybody uh, in about one month. And we're making plans to focus particularly on getting that third dose to uh, those that live in nursing homes and senior care facilities, because it does offer an additional degree of protection is what the data shows. We have just about a minute, Governor, and there's something I want to pick up on that you said there. You called our listeners educated, and you equated that with vaccination. Is it your sense that people who are unvaccinated are uneducated at this point? Well, I, I'm not referring to a formal degree of education, Ryan. I, I don't mean that, you know, because somebody has a college degree or a high school degree, they're educated. What I mean is educated with regard to the cost and benefit of the vaccine. And it, it's one of those things where it's not even like it's a marginal case. Oh, like, you know, maybe there's a little benefit. You, you, you weigh it. And and if you look at it in any type of, uh, you know, objective way, uh, the, the benefits, you know, are hundreds of times greater than, you know, having a sore arm the next day or, or, you know, having a headache the next day or, you know, having 99 degree fever the next day. I mean, the benefits are hundreds of times greater because this is a deadly virus and it turns into a manageable virus once you're vaccinated with significantly lower hospitalization rates, negligible hospitalization rates, as well as reducing the transmission. So thank you, if people Governor. are out there, I encourage you to get educated on the matter of the vaccine. And that means looking at legitimate sources of information. Thank you so CDC, much. World Health Organization and doctors. That is Democratic Governor Jared Polis. As we run up against the clock, Governor, grateful for your time as always. Back in the next half hour on CPR News. In a world where maps must be drawn and people divided, 
No part of Boulder County should be included in a district with Bell County. A beast of nightmare stalks the land. One of the shapes looked like a mythological salamander. That is where journeyman rain comes from. From CPR News, Purplish, the redistricturating, how Colorado is picking its new political maps and why it matters. Everywhere you get your podcasts. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Many kids haven't been inside a classroom in a year and a half because of the pandemic. So there's excitement and anxiety, too. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine spoke with kids headed back to campus. Ten-year-old Clarissa Coleman is going into fifth grade. The last time she was in school, she was a third grader. She's excited to make friends and to learn all her times tables and division. I ask if she's worried about anything. Well... She tilts her braided, blue-hair-banded head back to think. Uh, not really. Clarissa finally confesses she's worried about whether there'll be a crossing guard when she walks home. But heading back to her Aurora school, she thinks she'll be less distracted than she was at home. I don't think they have TVs in school. <laughs> Plus, online, Clarissa didn't like it when her internet was down. Teachers sometimes got frustrated. But the main reason school is better in person... Because the teacher's sound won't go out because she's not a computer. Kids always tell it like it is. 17-year-old Anushka Johnny is excited to go back to school. She's been isolated for almost a year and a half. So I was in my room my entire school year, like seven hours a day in front of a screen. In my room, it's dark in the winter, it's cold, it's lonely. Depression and anxiety in her and her friends crept up, but she pushed forward. She played her violin more. Even running to the nearest Dunkin' Donuts for a coffee or a bike ride helped. She wants to work on her social skills this year. She says many teens feel stunted. She was 16, a sophomore, when the pandemic started. Now, suddenly, she's a senior. I turn 18 in two months, and that's also really scary because I've spent my entire 17th year in isolation, primarily, and I'm almost an adult, and I don't know how to adjust properly yet. She knows she'll get there, but now she's nervous about the Delta variant. She's not sure about attending the traditional senior sunrise. I obviously want to see all my classmates and my friends and partake in this really cool tradition, but I'm also scared about COVID. 13-year-old Medeas Frandina says wearing masks will help schools stay in person. In fact, he just switched schools after the one he and his siblings were enrolled in announced that masks were optional. I, for one, do not want to be quarantined every other week and be stuck at home doing online. I'm kind of done with that. Medeus doesn't get adults arguing over masks or whether to get a vaccine, but he's learned why some black Americans might be skeptical of science and doctors. I could understand why some people, like people of color, for example, might be hesitant to get the vaccine, and I understand that. But like some people, primarily white people, I feel like we could do a better job of just like accepting science and not doubting it. Medeus is going into eighth grade and super excited about returning to in-person learning. Most kids had their cameras off during virtual learning and he says it was really hard to get discussions going. I'm looking forward to being part of a community again. In the final days of summer, Medeus kicks around a soccer ball with his sister Bella. She's excited, heading into seventh grade. Just because I haven't like got the real middle school experience, like with lockers and changing classes, like eating in a cafeteria. 
Hi, Cody. How was school? 15-year-old Cody Mendenhall has already had one week in school in Grand Junction. My first week was craziness. Cody has cerebral palsy. She speaks through a communication device. More recently, she's had epilepsy and fatigue. The first week saw smiles and laughter, but also some tears. Cody made it through two full days and three half days. But for now, Cody's feeling good about the year. She wears a mask and is vaccinated. I want to get good grades and hang out with friends. I miss everybody. If there's one theme in all my interviews, it's that kids are desperate to stay in school, to be around friends. Incoming seventh grader Xavion Miller hasn't been inside a school since fifth grade. Online, well... It didn't really feel normal to me. Still, he got straight A's last year and hopes to continue that streak. He's got specific academic goals. Social studies is a little difficult for me, but I I still kind of understand it. I just want to understand it completely, like, for example, math, because that's one of my favorite subjects. I ask him how he feels about masks. Um, I feel... Uh, nonchalant about it? That's a five-star word. Who says kids didn't learn anything last year? I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. If you Google the question, is marijuana racist, there's no shortage of articles that try to answer definitively. But the racial baggage behind the word is more complicated than yes or no. Anne-Maria Wad explores this in the season finale of On Something, CPR's podcast about life after legalization. I get these emails sometimes. They're mostly from the same guy. He loves the show. But his only complaint is that I often use the word marijuana. So allow me to explain myself a little bit. I made a conscious decision early on not to choose a particular word for the stuff that we talk about on this show, mostly because you would get tired of hearing me say it all the time but also because I wanted to reflect the fact that many people don't have just one word for it. But marijuana isn't just any word. Over this podcast's brief lifetime, I've actually been asked this question quite a few times. Don't you know that the word is racist? And I wanted to take an episode to really explore that question in depth because, yes, I know it's got some baggage. But on the other hand... It is the word that really stuck. But now, in 2021, three years later, as we do a whole season about racial justice, it feels like it's worth revisiting the history that made this word so sticky. So to get started, we went to a dispensary and asked around. Um, Do you think the word marijuana is racist? No, I don't. Why not? Being from where I'm from, North Carolina, uh, marijuana was illegal. And if it was to be used, it was used by anyone of all race. And if you used it, you were bad. It didn't matter if you were brown, white, anything. So uh, from my personal experience and what I know about it, I do not think the word's racist. All right. So do you think the word marijuana is racist? Absolutely not. Why not? Because I don't see how the word marijuana has anything to do with race. Okay. You know, if you said to me, do I think, you know, only people who smoke blunts are, are black, that's racist. Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so no, marijuana is not racist. That's like saying is cannabis racist. No, I don't I don't think there's any I don't think there's any implication whatsoever. Okay. 
I don't think the average person understands the context of this word. So, this is Abdullah Saeed, cannabis journalist extraordinaire. I guess I'm not surprised that a couple of white dudes outside the dispensary are unaware of what words are racist or not in the context of marijuana. He hosts a podcast, Great Moments in Weed History, and a cooking show, Bong Appetit. Here in Seattle, everybody's about craft everything. Well, I'm about to meet the folks over at Craft Elixirs. He believes that by any other name, this intoxicating flower smells just as sweet. But please, he says, pick another name, any other name. He argues that this one has been ruined by its history. This is On Something, stories about life after legalization. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. You have arrived at the final installment of our series, Fair Shake, all about the pitfalls along the path to social equity. And to cap things off, we're going back in time, before legalization, before anyone ever even used the word marijuana specifically to understand the complicated inheritance that comes with that word, marijuana. Truthfully, it's got some baggage. And what's in that baggage depends on whose version of history you're reading. So let's dive in. The argument that the word is racist comes from the 1930s, when weed first became illegal in the United States. For more of this history, you could check out the first ever episode of our show. At the time... The word marijuana was used in enforcement and in media specifically because the authorities understood that Americans were very prejudiced in general against Spanish-speaking peoples, Latinx peoples at that time. And their goal was to demonize cannabis. And in order to demonize it, they started using the word marijuana specifically because it's Spanish-sounding. And they thought that, oh, yeah, if people hear this, they'll hear, oh, this is this, like, bad-sounding, Spanish-sounding thing, and that they'll go along with, you know, the, the, the prohibitionist goals of, you know, thinking that it's poisonous or, or thinking right. that it's evil or dangerous in some way. So basically, Abdullah argues that by calling it marijuana instead of, say, a more neutral term like cannabis— the government and media were deliberately invoking racist attitudes towards Mexicans and then essentially mapping those feelings onto the plant itself. Now, Abdullah is not the only passenger on this time machine. Meet Latin American historian Isaac Campos, author of Homegrown, Marijuana and the Origins of Mexico's War on Drugs. The first reference to it as a intoxicant is in the 1770s, where it's discovered to be the plant behind a kind of mysterious drug that was called the Pipilcinsinslis. It was a Nahuatl word that's one of the indigenous languages of Mexico, and it meant most noble of princes. It's possible that it could have referred to any one of three different plants. Which reminds me, this is probably a good place for a disclaimer that cannabis history in general is murky. And historians disagree about origin stories in particular. So this is Isaac's argument based on Isaac's research. 
So Indians used it in a way very similar to the way peyote was used in Mexico. It was ground into a kind of powder and put into a drink and drunk for purposes of divination to kind of see into the unknown, to commune with the spirit world. And uh, for that reason, it was prohibited by church authorities the first time in the 1690s and then again in the 1770s. Isaac theorizes that the root word for marijuana might have come from this early prohibition. Indigenous people might have done a kind of rebranding, he says, coming up with more Christian-sounding names for sacred plants that were being outlawed by the Catholic Church. Other words like this in the colonial era gradually became Christianized and got names like, um, you know, Mary's Rose and things like that, Rosa Maria and cannabis, in, in fact, included. So I suggested that the word sounds a bit more Christian, maybe with the word Mari, like Maria, involved. And so perhaps it's a Christianization of these earlier words. But again, we just really don't know where it comes from. All we can really certainly say for sure is that the earliest references are from Mexico, and it certainly comes to the United States from Mexico. And in Mexico, it's certainly considered to be a very Mexican word. If Isaac's theory is correct, maybe that rebranding worked and it kept a low profile so people could still consume marijuana without invoking the wrath of the church. In any case, the next time the word appears is a century later. The first reference to the smoking of cannabis comes at the end of the 1840s in a newspaper article, which claims, uh, interestingly, that marijuana was being blamed on an outbreak of laziness in the army (laughs) in Mexico. Then in the 1850s, it appears in more work by nationalist botanists who bring it up again, talk about how it's being smoked in prisons, talk about how it can produce a kind of furious delirium in its users, uh, a kind of, you know, angry madness. And that's the reputation that really sticks in Mexico for the next, you know, 70 years until it's prohibited in 1920. So just after the turn of the 20th century, before it even travels to the United States, the word is already loaded up with baggage. By this time, it already had this reputation as an indigenous plant, and anything indigenous was looked upon by the Mexican ruling class as primitive and dangerous. It's here where Isaac started to trace the beginning of this thread that tied marijuana together with stories about laziness, violence, or even madness. It gained a reputation as a pastime of degenerates. According to sensationalist Mexican newspapers of the time, smoking marijuana was the purview of prisoners, soldiers, poor and indigenous people— Actually, in the run-up to national marijuana prohibition in 1920, various Mexican states had already banned its cultivation and sale, even though cannabis was not actually widely used. But it was well-known in prisons and soldiers' barracks, which were unsanitary and very violent environments, with probably high levels of mental illness as well, though we don't have good information on that. And so... Most people didn't have personal experience with cannabis, but cannabis was experienced in these environments that produced a lot of violence and a lot of wild behavior. That also contributed to the development of this reputation. Mexico banned marijuana in 1920, the same year that the United States banned alcohol. The force behind that prohibition, the temperance movement, similarly saw the drink as one of society's greatest ills, leading to violence, gambling, and suicide. Alcohol prohibition lasted into the 1930s, and the federal government would create a whole new agency to oversee its enforcement. 
It's time for the Longines Chronoscope, a television journal of the important issues of the hour. Our distinguished guest for this evening is Harry Anslinger, United States Commissioner of Narcotics. Now, Anslinger is someone we have met before on this podcast. Like I said, you can go back to our first episode ever for more of this history. But here is Anslinger's brief bio. In 1930, he's appointed to run the brand-new Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He was well-connected and dogged about his job. And he remained in the federal government in some capacity for more than 30 years, serving five presidents and leaving his fingerprints all over our drug laws. He is perhaps best known as the guy who made it his personal mission to outlaw marijuana. And he succeeded in 1937 with the passage of the Marijuana Tax Act. To get a sense of who this guy was, he was extremely racist. For Abdullah, Anslinger is one of the great villains in weed history. And it's easy to see why. One of the crazier claims that Anslinger made was that black and brown men would use marijuana to seduce white women. And apparently there was no greater threat to the white American public than their women falling for black and brown men. And this was something that he harped on. And I think it really speaks to the insecurity that is behind his sort of insane prohibitionist mindset. And then there was the idea that cannabis ruined the minds of young people. Yeah, that was an Anslinger original. That it makes them crazy, that it makes them violent, that it makes them dangerous. There were a number of stories propagated that said, oh, uh, look, marijuana made this person go crazy and murder their entire family, right? And these were completely spurious claims. Very often, someone might have been extremely drunk and committed a violent crime, but if there was any marijuana in the area, they would blame it on on the weed, as it were. So it's probably fair to say that you see Harry Anslinger as a racist? Yes. Okay. Um, Do you think of these views as out of the ordinary at the time? Like, was he in particular racist against Mexican people, or was the federal government racist against Mexican people, and he was sort of uh, falling in line? If you look at the history of the U.S. government's policies, especially at that time, I I think you have to accept that there were a lot of laws and the ethos behind them were inherently racist. Certainly, Harry J. Ainslinger was not an outlier in the U.S. government for being kind of racist, right? However, there also is a level of personal zeal that he seems to have taken in leading this prohibitionist campaign. He really got into it. If you look at this guy, he wasn't just like, ah, I'm just doing my job. He very zealously ran on this campaign and maligned black and brown people, maligned marijuana. But Isaac, the historian, disagrees. He feels like the race argument for cannabis prohibition is overhyped and that there are other factors that explain it. More importantly, he says, when it comes to the word marijuana, no one was using that word as a kind of slur against actual people. Look, I I think sometimes 
if a word has been used to great prejudice against people, the word specifically has been used to denigrate people, then yes, it matters. It's important to think about that history and to probably change the word we're using, particularly if the people involved want you to change the word you're using. Again, I just don't think marijuana fits that bill. I don't think it was, um, it was just a word that came into the American use because of Mexican influence, kind of like the word salsa. Essentially, he says the argument that the word is racist hinges on the premise that marijuana prohibition itself is racist, which he also rejects. He agrees that there was systemic racism against Mexican people at that time. He just doesn't think that this is when it all began. You know, you didn't need cannabis to create an anti-Mexican campaign. There was already plenty of prejudice against Mexicans. You didn't have to add cannabis to that and prohibit it nationwide to to help with that effort. It's almost like a chicken and egg scenario. But whichever came first, the racism or the prohibition, they're all intertwined by now in that word, marijuana. And in the decades since, marijuana is the word that stuck. Abdullah says to him, it doesn't matter which came first. What matters is all that's happened since. We know now that that prohibition was eventually rolled up into the war on drugs, a tradition of policies and perceptions that have disproportionately criminalized people of color over the generation since. I believe that in the modern context, the word marijuana is racist. I believe that the origins of the word were not, were, you know, actually just a cultural product, but I believe the misappropriation of the word in media over the last several decades, almost the last century now, have made it into a racist word, and I believe its use today can be rightfully interpreted as such. What would you say to someone who is Mexican or of Mexican descent who might think that using another word would be whitewashing? Yeah, I think that is a very valid point. The reason that we in the United States see it as a racist word is because of the way it was used by the authorities, right? We could make the argument that by co-opting it, by using that word and by owning it ourselves, we're taking away the power of the people who have been using it to marginalize people of color, right? So... Mm -hmm. I think that would be cool, and and I do support it. However, as a brown-skinned person in America today, I live in a certain context of the word marijuana. If you turn around right now and Google this question, is marijuana racist? There's no shortage of articles trying to answer this definitively. But for who? Who's even asking? Who is it that you you see most often engaged in debate about this? Like, who who is it that asks you about this? Is it is it people like me, journalists? Is it students? Is it no? It's people in the industry. Journalists, <laughs> for sure. It's always journalists. Isaac Campos gets calls from folks like me and Abdullah all the time. It's us. We're the ones googling this every day. The call is coming from inside the house from those of us trying to untangle this whole mess for the rest of you. I think the average person probably doesn't really care. And, you know, that's that's just the word that you use for it, you know. But I think that the people who are interested in it are people who value the social impact of cannabis and want it to be 
perceived by the general public in a positive light, right? Like, we don't want to tie cannabis to its messy history in this context today, right? We want to shed all the pain and abuse of the prohibitionist days while still remembering it. Many people in the United States still live under prohibition. As a cannabis journalist, I am far more interested in this question than the average person, right? I, yeah. I, I can't deny that. But to me, the nuance is important, right? Mm. Words matter. I, I mm. truly believe that. And if there's even a, a small way in which we can take a stand, that I, I think we should. Also, talking about the history of the word, right? Even having this discussion, merely asking the question, is it racist, right? And answering it allows us to convey the history behind it. People start asking that question. Words matter. And the way Abdullah sees it, wouldn't you rather travel light? Wouldn't you rather choose the word with fewer pieces of baggage? Less troublesome history attached to it? For a flower with so many names, are you really going to miss one? And Maria Wad with an excerpt of On Something, CPR's podcast about life after legalization. That's the final episode of season three, Fair Shake, which focuses on cannabis equity. You can find the full season at Apple, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, at CPR.org. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team of wordsmiths. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to the On Something team. I'll see you on the road next week. Broadcasting live from La Junta and Rocky Ford in southeast Colorado to begin with. This is CPR News and KRCC.